Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. It is true, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible. Hello, I'm Charlotte Kasseragi. Welcome to the podcast of Les Rendez-vous littéraires Rue Cambon, a place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Selby Wynne Schwartz and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Selby Wynne Schwartz's aims for her debut, After Sappho, can be plainly stated but are profound. At its heart, the book is about trying to find a shape for your life that hasn't already been prescribed as your inevitable cramped destiny, she has said. Essentially, this is a book about the desire to write your life for yourself, preferably in good company. And who among us wouldn't want to do that? After Sappho is a bold novel told in adventurous chorus. From the Italy of the 1880s to Paris and London in the 1920s, here are fragments of the lives of real women. From the Italian poets Lina Poletti and Sibylla Alaramo, to the American writer and saloniste Natalie Barney, the painter Romaine Brooks, the iconic Sarah Bernhardt, Isadora Duncan, Nancy Cunard, Virginia Woolf, Gertrude Stein, and Radcliffe Hall. A narrative voice pulls us forward in the second person. Someone will remember us, I say, remarks this speaker, even in another time. Real women's lives are woven together and overlap as they create art and have love affairs with each other and argue with their very lives against the misogynist status quo, against the laws and conventions that seek to hold them back. This is a remorselessly gorgeous investigation of the possibilities of existing fully and courageously. It's a book, too, about love and the power of love. As Laura Feigl wrote in The Guardian, After Sappho is a book that's wholly seduced by seduction and that seduces in turn. And that's partly because the sentences, crisply flat yet billowing easily into gorgeous lyricism, feel so easily, casually of our time. The confidence in Schwartz's ventriloquizing of the past sends the reader spinning into the present, even if she herself doesn't look it squarely in the eye. With After Sappho, Selby Wynne Schwartz joined that select band of authors who have been long-listed for the Booker Prize for their debut novel, as she was, in 2022. It was also shortlisted for both the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction, 2023, and James Tate Black Prize for Fiction in the United Kingdom in 2023. She is also the author of The Bodies of Others, Drag Dances and Their Afterlives, a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in LGBTQ nonfiction. That book won the Sally Baines Prize from the American Society for Theatre Research. Her novella, A Life in Chameleons, just published as we speak, 
won the Reflex Press Novella Award. She holds a PhD in Comparative Literature from the University of California, Berkeley, and currently teaches writing at Stanford University. I'm so delighted to be talking to you today, Selby. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored and delighted to be here. So in this first part of our talk, we begin by discussing your vocation as a writer. Tell us a bit about your beginnings. What did you read growing up and first made you want to write? I know you've said of Virginia Woolf, she was the first one who showed me that writing can do this. Yes, in fact, and the this of the this for me is that... Um, yeah, a particular passage where she's describing dinner party and the way that that light passes through space, um, which is also the way that, that the gaze or the thinking passes over a group of people and, and ripples and hangs in the air. Um, and I just didn't know you could do that until Virginia Woolf. Um, so yes, I read I read Virginia Woolf quite young and probably never really recovered from that. Um, but I also... I. I just, I think I started being a writer by being an inveterate reader, a really insatiable and voracious reader. And I, I went through um, the whole children's section of my public library when I was little. And then, and then I had nothing else to read. So I went on to the adult section and, you know, sort of started with A, uh, which maybe wasn't the wisest course of, of reading or the but it um, exposed me to a lot of things. And um, so I'm a great fan of, of libraries, particularly public libraries, and the chance to, to read widely and absorb and explore through, through books. Um, that was, I think, yeah, the, the way that I became a writer was by first being really a, a hopeless and inveterate reader. And that's a very interesting thing to say right now, it seems to me, because there's a lot of discussions around what children should be allowed to read. I put that word aloud in quotes. Yes. And obviously you benefited from just, as you say, beginning at A and carrying on. Yes. Well, I don't. I'm sure it's um, it's evident that I, I don't believe that keeping books about the possibility of becoming different things should be kept away from children who might become those things and who might want to know, even if they don't become, who are going to live in a world where a glorious diversity of identities and ways of being is part of the world that we're in. And it's absolutely useless and also horrible to deny people the possibility to discover. Your first book, which I mentioned in the introduction, was non-fiction. Yes. What prompted you to shift to fiction for after Sappho. And of course, it's a very particular kind of fiction. So we'll come to that too. <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose it's because I'm a very particular kind of writer, if that's the word for it. It's that I um, I think I'm a very errant writer and I, I'm, not, I'm not following a set path where I know what I'm going to do next or even logically one thing follows from the next. But what happens really is I'm going around in the world having my life and 
I fall in love with something and usually it's something I didn't plan to fall in love with and often it's something I don't know very much about and so but the propulsion of the love is so strong that then I set out to learn everything I can possibly learn about this thing that I, it's like falling in love with a person you just want to stay up all night and learn everything you could possibly know about them and everything is endlessly fascinating and then it's only once I've really gathered and accumulated and absorbed and been immersed in in whatever the thing is that I've fallen in love with, that I feel like I finally have enough that I can maybe create something of my own in honor of that of that thing that I that I have been in love with. And so that's that's the path of everything that I've written. So even before I wrote the book about drag and dance, I was a medievalist briefly, or for, for several years. And I, you know, I wrote a dissertation on um, Occitan and medieval Italian poetry and performance, particularly about uh, women and the personae of women uh, in, in Western Europe performing and creating these these forms of poetry. So to switch from that to writing about, you know, mostly 20th century uh, concert dance in drag was kind of a change as well. But it happened because I fell in love with the Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo. And I just, I just wanted to know everything I could know. And I from there, it took me, you know, a good decade or more to write to write my first book. And then I was writing about um, a dance piece um, done by a choreographer called Kat Galasso, and it was a piece about the Lumiere brothers, and I didn't know anything about early cinema, so I was teaching myself about early cinema. And in the process of reading um, a book by Laurent Manoni called, I think it's called The Archaeology of Cinema, there was a footnote, uh, probably like page 300, footnote 117, um, about this Italian drag artist, uh, who belonged to early cinema called Leopoldo Fregoli, and that became the next novella I wrote. And while I was reading a lot about Leopoldo Fregoli, then I encountered Sarah Bernhardt. And Sarah Bernhardt, you can't encounter Sarah Bernhardt really without also encountering Eleonora Duza. And when I encountered Eleonora Duza, I encountered Lina Poletti. And then I fell in love. And then it was another hopeless love story. So it's all these wonderful paths that you that you go down. Yes. But you've noted that your wonderful British publisher, Galley Beggar, yes. helped to encourage you to see After Sappho as a novel. Oh, more can than you encouraged, tell yeah. me? Can you tell me a little bit more about kind of that process of, of bringing it into being with them? Absolutely, yes. Well, um, I mean, this book wouldn't exist without Ellie and Sam, and in so many different ways. Um, because when I first, when I had written the manuscript, I didn't know what to call it. I couldn't, I I just was inadequate in my language. And I, I piled up these big kind of train wrecks of adjectives around it. Like it's a, I think it's a kind of collective, speculative, reimagined, queer, collective, semi-fictional, hybrid, genre, experimental. Anyway, this was a pretty terrible pitch letter, I have to say. And, um, but Ellie and Sam read past that and they read the manuscript and um, they reached out to me and said, do you know, we might want to publish your novel. And it was uh, wonderful and also kind of unbelievable to me that it could they could just have one word for it. And I think that speaks to their 
extremely generous and expansive understanding of what could be a novel. You know, they're, the, they're also the the press that published you know, Lucy Ellman, for example. So, and and it gave me a way to understand what I had made without either just heaping adjectives on top of it or saying what it wasn't, which I also tried to say, well, it's not really historical fiction. Well, it's not really. And and yeah, my ways were fairly inadequate, as you can tell. And I, I think Ellie and Sam just have such a clarity of vision and such a generosity um, in terms of their understanding of how, uh, which shapes a book can take. And then once they accepted the manuscript, they worked very intensively with me to, to bring it into its full shape. And they could see so many things about how it would appear to other readers and what it needed to, to sort of fill out or, you know, I guess in the terms of the novel, to become itself, um, that I couldn't see. I was too inside of it. And um, it was a great pleasure to, to work with them in that process. Tell us a little bit about Sappho herself and how she inhabits this book, and perhaps too about the Canadian poet and classicist Anne Carson, whose work has been so important to you. Yes, well, Anne Carson. So I, f- I first read Anne Carson some years ago, and the first thing I read of hers was was Short Talks, which is one of her older books. And um, yeah, I guess I'm betraying you that I'm I'm sort of a, an enthusiast and an amateur, but I really am in in all those senses, in the you know the amatory sense of the of the word. And I thought, oh, I I'm so I'm not a poet. I'm also not a not a classicist. Um, but when I read short talks, I thought, oh, that's I want to be able to do that. And I tried, <laughs> and I and I failed. Um, yeah. So the for me, the sad thing is that I'm not Anne Carson. But the the lovely thing is is that Anne Carson is Anne Carson and uh, and her writing is in the world and I can read it as a as a reader and I can appreciate it and yeah so in my attempt to to sort of write in her form of short talks and in my failure to be able to do that I started making these little yeah what what Sam and Ellie were calling cascading vignettes which I think is a very beautiful way to describe it and um, and Anne Carson in addition to being you know. Uh, the person who wrote short talks um, also wrote, uh, also did the translation or a translation called "If Not Winter" of the poems of Sappho, and um, that was a, a foundation and a bedrock for me. I can't read in the original Greek, so I, I was reading her facing page edition with all of her fantastic notes. For me, that became a kind of anchor text for for what I was writing, Sappho. You know, Sappho herself was a poet, and we can assume that most poets don't don't want their work shredded into tiny bits and dispersed um, into various, you know, what become archaeological sites. But that's the you know the material history of literature is also part of the history of of literature we have. So, the fragments of Sappho that remain have acquired a sort of a sense of form that that. I'm sure they wouldn't have had originally when they were entire poems and entire books of poems and and songs. You know, we've we've lost some of the the form that they were produced in, but the thing that fragments gain and 
there's a, maybe an ambivalence here, is, you know, the, the fragment can feel as though it's, it's a loose something that's floating around that is open to you, that has been broken open just for you to fill it. Or, and there's something a little romantic and perhaps a form of, of appropriation or uh, something. Yeah, I, there's an ambivalence I have about that. But but on the other hand, it's very useful to have something because possessive can, almost because you can take yeah, it into yourself. You can and you can wrap your ideas around the fragment and then make the fragment look or feel whole. Yeah, as if as if it were you know a shard of pottery and you had glued it back together. But the the glue and the configuration of those shards is is yours. That's a wonderful way to think about it. Can you tell us about a few more texts, perhaps, that were significant to you in building this wonderful novel? Yes. Well, I um, I think in general I've been very influenced by. Um, by people, most mostly women, writing about the interiors of lives, whether about the the lives of many women, like Aja Jabbar's Women of Algiers and Their Apartments is a, also a kind of collage of, of lives, of women's lives, very much about interiors. Uh, Claire Louise Bennett as well, Danielle Dutton, um, some, some more sort of experimental contemporary writing uh, by women. Um, uh, Ijaba Shego's *The Color Line*, uh, which was was translated recently from the Italian, is a is a sort of also a, a novel that draws on history and brings lives together in new ways. But in terms of um, form, you know, as I said, sadly for me, I'm not a poet, but yeah, trying to imitate Anne Carson and failing, and also the poet Dion Brand, um, her book *The Blue Clerk*. I just reread and reread in awe. I think she can do things that make me feel like the page is illuminated from within. So in a way, I guess I'm I'm partly inspired by by people who are so far ahead of me that I can only barely see what they're doing. But then when I was writing after Sappho, um, I was was also tremendously helped by by scholars mostly and, and archivists and historians. Um, who have done all of this work that I could then build on, and in particular, um, Sidia Hartman's um, Wayward Lives was was very inspiring to me. I mean, she's doing something much more rigorous than I am, but I, I look up to her and her mode of critical fabulation. There's also a great book um, by T. Deneen Sharply Whiting called Bricktops Paris that's a series of lives of African-American women in Paris between the wars. That's also partly, she also invents a kind of, um, there's a part that's in, that's autobiography, there's a part that's biography, these little sort of um, episodes of lives, and then there's a part where she makes her own. And that was, um, I mean, she's a, she's a scholar, and I, I was astonished to find so much creativity already existing in scholarship before before I came to it. Well, I think what you feel as a reader from after Sappho is you feel your scholarship and your deep love of your subject as you're writing across these women's lives, and it gives the reader permission to use their imagination in following oh, that would these be lives. Lovely. I would like that very much if that's, that were true. That's what I felt reading it mm. anyway. Um, let's hear a little bit 
of After Sappho. Will you read something for us? Yes, I, I can read. I can read the first page. Uh, so this is this is from the prologue. Sappho, circa 630 BCE. The first thing we did was change our names. We were going to be Sappho. Who was Sappho? No one knew, but she had an island. She was garlanded with girls. She could sit down to dine and look straight at the woman she loved, however unhappily. When she sang, everyone said, it was like evening on a riverbank, sinking down into the moss with the sky pouring over you. All of her poems were songs. We read Sappho at school, in classes intended merely to teach poetic meter. Very few of our teachers imagined that they were swelling our veins with cassia and myrrh. In dry voices they went on about the aorist tense, while inside ourselves we felt the leaves of trees shivering in the light, everything dappled, everything trembling. We were so young then that we had never met. In back gardens we read as much as we could, staining our dresses with mud and pine pitch. Some of us were sent by our families to distant schools to be finished, so that we would come to our proper end. But it was not our end. It was barely our beginning. Each one lingered in her own place, searching the fragments of poems for words to say what this was, this feeling that Sappho calls Ithusomenon, the way that leaves move when nothing touches them but the afternoon light. At that time we were not called anything, and so we cherished every word, no matter how many centuries dead. Reading of the nocturnal rites of the Panucades, we stayed up all night. The exile of Sappho to Sicily turned our eyes to the sea. We began writing odes to clover blossoms and blushing apples, or painting on canvases that we turned to the wall at the slightest sound of footsteps. A sidelong glance, a half-smile, a hand that rested on our arms just above the elbow. We had not yet memorized the lines for these occasions. Or there were only fragments of lines that we could have offered in any case. Of the nine books of poems written by Sappho, mere shreds of dactyl survive, as in fragment 24C. We live. The opposite. Daring. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I next want to talk to you a little bit about your process and your working methods. In our conversation, you talked about the cascading vignettes, as your publisher called them, which make the structure of this novel. They look like conventional chapters, but they're not quite conventional chapters. How did you build this structure for your novel? Mm, yeah, well, apart from my failure to uh, make short talks after Anne Carson, I also, um, when I was trying to teach myself about early cinema and I was writing about the life of Leopoldo Fregoli, I, um, I was asking myself how, what, what would it look like to make a life, like a biography in, in film strips? What would it be like to write a, a life in short film? So this was one that sort of maybe fanciful answer to that question. Um, but also one of the things maybe that, it, that well, uh, something large that was different between writing the life of one, one person, more or less, Leopoldo Fregoli, although he had many characters that he inhabited, and writing many, many lives that were intertwined and overlapped and interbraided and after Sappho, is that 
the shape of the circles of of mostly women or people who at that time identified as women that I was writing about made overlapping inter-rippling circles in themselves and that was a form of linkage between the the vignettes the sections that isn't exactly linear and that accorded to me with the a kind of temporality that isn't that isn't you know straight time either that isn't strictly marching forward into along a linear line of progress it's going a bit back and and moving jumping a little forward and then looping around and picking something up and and so the lives and the timeline were both both had this kind of rippling or overlapping structure you spoke of these ripples these overlapping circles is that what led you toward this second person this we as a narrative voice in a way yes although also also maybe two other ideas one was the idea of the chorus and but n- not a not a chorus maybe in the strict classical sense that stands off to the side of the action and and laments um but a chorus that would be both active engaged like a chorus that would be changed by the actions of the of the story if it could be called a story uh and also a a chorus that or a we that begins by being very young and we and i would include myself in the chorus in this way we begin as readers really as inveterate readers were too young to have to have experiences and so we find out about the world by reading about it and that produces the desire to know more and and to meet more people that we can understand and resonate with and learn from and so the we the we is often looking up to people who who in this book are real historical figures um and the we is a kind of amalgamation or composite not not all of the for at least the way i imagine it they're not all the same but they are a collective they're together learning so i think the the we for me fulfilled those two functions both being a a chorus that is engaged and then also a way of expressing this kind of how how do you begin as a group of readers who would like to be able to learn how to write their own lives and maybe even the lives of 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 Lina Poletti you lead me on to Lina Poletti who I was going to ask you about she's such a wonderful anchor for this book can you tell us a little bit about your discovery of her and perhaps you mentioned a bit earlier the paths you took towards all the different lives in this novel. Mm, yes, well I wish I could tell you more about Lina Poletti <laughs> but uh sadly there isn't very much left. Um it's really there's one book um called Yokiorochi um and then there's some some rec- you know some uh, collections of her of her letters one of her poems exists still the Poemetto della Guerra um but I I very much wish there were more and um my discovery of Lina Poletti 
Well, in a way, I should have known about her. I studied, I mean, I read Sibila Laramo at university, um, and Sibila Laramo for a time was involved with Lina Polaiti, and I learned about Sibila Laramo, but I never heard about Lina Polaiti. Uh, so I only came across her really in this very roundabout way when I was learning about, about Eleonor Duza, and then I realized that she had also been involved with Lina Polaiti. Um, and then I went looking for everything I could find, and I was surprised and, and saddened that there wasn't more. And I wanted there to be more. And I think in a way, you know, making this book was my way of imagining into the world what I wanted there to already have been about Lina Poletti. And there's, I think, something kind of selfish about that, maybe something kind of childish about it, but maybe also something... I don't know, political in that there are, I mean, Lina Poletti is not the only figure to have been, in my view, unjustly obscured historically or or not seen as worth archiving or whatever it was that happened to her, to her work, to her papers, the ephemera of her life. So, um, so that's how I, that's how I came to Lina Poletti. And then once, so once I had discovered Lina Poletti, you know, she was connected to these figures I did already know, and they were connected to figures, and that's how the interlapping over over braided circles began. And sometimes the circles actually ripple back into each other. You go all the way around, and then you realize, ah, who read, or ah, who translated, ah, who was at the same time actually and could have crossed over with. And your book has an extensive bibliography. <laughs> yes, novels don't always have. This gave me a, a wonderful feeling, almost like I could be a collaborator with you, that oh. you could go forward from this book in all these different directions. It seemed very generous of you to, to do that. Was that your intention? Oh, that was a, a more beautiful way of saying than, than my intention even was. I, that's really lovely for me to hear. And I would, I would very much like people to go on. I mean, I've only made this little thing that I could make, you know, I have I have a lot of limits and constraints as a person and as a writer. I wrote the bibliographic note probably because, you know, I, I did used to be a grad student and in my other lives I am a scholar and ethically we're trained to acknowledge uh, those to whom we are indebted. Um, I think a, a lot in my life about Sarah Omned, and she says, you know, citations are feminist bricks. That's how you build. You say, I, I acknowledge that without the people who came before me in my lineage of thinking, I would not be able to build this. And I, I feel that way very strongly that I'm grateful to, to people who have done work that I can then, you know, learn from and... And I would like to acknowledge that. I know that novels don't usually have these long bibliographic notes, but I also felt that I couldn't not say, oh, do you know, this isn't mine. I borrowed this. Or this wasn't, I couldn't have made this unless I had this step that was already made by someone else. And if that could allow other people to go on and make their own things beyond what I could make, I would be very, very happy. You've talked about being a scholar, so you have your scholarly life. I'd love to hear a little bit about your writing routine and how you, I want to say, either integrate or separate <laughs> your creative writing from your 
scholarly work? Mm, a little bit of both. I wish it were more uh, regulated. Mm, there's a, a messy integration of, of life and and making, creating, I think. Uh, so things permeate that uh, membrane. Maybe I can take this opportunity to say how much I love um, libraries and librarians and archivists and how grateful I am that uh, that you can go into these spaces, I mean now also into these digital spaces, and just follow your curiosity beyond what you even thought you were going to ask. And that's true for me both as a scholar and as a creative writer and, and in a way, um, yeah, that sense of of being inquisitive and of having resources that not only um, allow you to 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 follow your curiosity, but open up, branch out into these other ramifications of things that you didn't even know you were going to ask, and how that how that leads even to new projects. I think you're right, not just to celebrate libraries, but also the people who work in them, librarians and archivists. Do you have a first reader? How do you know when something is ready to leave your desk and make its way out into the world? Uh, I do have a first reader, um, but I have to say, I have only learned maybe recently, I should have learned before that um, when I finish writing something, the first draft of something, I have a really childish sense of of pride and actual perfection like oh look at that i've written this thing it's absolutely perfect i'm done and the only thing i want to hear at that moment is yes selby look it's absolutely perfect this thing you just tossed off it's done you don't have to do any more work look at you um yeah so that sadly <laughs> that's not true and so only as a, really as a grown-up but mm, a recent grown-up i've i've learned that i need to stop between the phase where I think it's done and perfect, which is the moment I have finished writing this first draft of it, and the moment of giving it to any other readers. Because if I want them to help me and to see the piece as it is, then I need to be open to what they're going to say, which is usually not, oh, look, Selby, it's absolutely perfect as it is, even though you just tossed it off two minutes ago. Um, So now I make a space between those two moments. I give myself two days to be kind of yeah childishly self-satisfied and then and then I'm ready to hear actual useful critique I I think it's worth celebrating finishing something it's a big achievement so I absolutely allow you those two days thank you (laughs) maybe this is an impossible question to answer but I'm going to try what was the most challenging aspect of writing after Sappho was there something that stands out to you where you thought I'm not going to get over this obstacle, and then you did. I don't know if this actually answers your question, but there was a sort of uh, draft drafting phase in the middle where I went much too fast, although I didn't know it while I was writing. And I kind of piled all these stories on top of each other and then like shot through to Virginia Woolf's Orlando, and then I, I was done. And I think it was just a, a picture of my brain working at that time. It wasn't really a, a form that was readable. So 
I had to kind of extract myself from that once I could see that's what had happened. I guess, you know, I I love I love to write beginnings. I like the beginnings of things in general. It's also open. You've just started. Things are just unfolding before you. And I find endings are harder for me because you have to pull everything together. And um, I think some people are very talented at that. You know, they have... They have a, a plot that's already knit together or they've got an argument that they're making and they summarize it at the end. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I have to look at all of the things that have been raveled and then try to pick out which which ones to pull together, which threads to to not. And it's not um, it's not a talent I particularly have. So it's more of a struggle for me at the end than at the beginning. In the next section of our talk, I'm going to ask you a little bit about the reception of this novel and what happened to it and to you when it did go out into the world. I wonder what the response to this book has meant to you. As I said in my introduction, it was long-listed for the Booker Prize, which I'm thinking must have been a rather fine thing. Uh, Yes, also a a (laughs) tremendous shock. Uh, Yes, when Sam... My editor, Sam from Gallybegger, called me. He said, hello, Selby, can you sit down right now? And I was I was crossing one of the big one of the big boulevards in Paris, actually. And I thought I looked both ways in the you know, in the middle of five lanes of traffic. On the, uh, and I said, Sam, I can't I can't I don't think I can really sit down right now. But he but he really wanted to make sure that I didn't just collapse from the shock. We were both so astonished. Um, so, yes, that was yeah, it was a bit was really unbelievable um, to me. And it took me, I don't know if I've still really absorbed that idea that that has happened. Um, but one thing that I did, that I did, that I felt like I was able to absorb because it was at such a, such a, a personal and moving level was when there was the book launch in London, um, I went round with Ellie, my, my editor, to the many bookshops and to sign copies in their, you know, in their back rooms. And I thought what we would do is like, I brought my pen. I thought we would go into the back room of some bookshop, you know, with like a, I don't know, a disused computer. And I would like, you know, move over a little dusty stack of books and scribble away in the corner for half an hour and then leave through the back door. And more more often, you know, I met I met the booksellers and a lot of them had, had read it and they wanted to tell me things about what it had meant to them. Or would it? Or like they had read it and they had given it to their flatmates, and they wanted to tell me what their flatmates wanted to tell me, and it meant a lot to me that that these booksellers wanted to tell me what. Not they didn't really want to ask me things about it, which was great. I I was much happier to just hear that it had meant anything to them, and that they they had something to say to me back about that, and that was that was very moving for me. That's beautiful, and perhaps that answers my next question, but I'll try anyway, because I was just so struck about the way in which this book is filled with stories of women taking new names and new identities, creating and transforming themselves in a world that's trying to refuse their autonomy. Yeah. What kind of specific responses have you got to that? That was so inspiring to me that we can make ourselves as we wish to be. Yes. Well, in a way it has been, there's a discouraging side to it, which is 
like when my book came out and in the US, you know, it was the the end of Roe v. Wade, for example, and people started saying to me, oh, it's amazing. Your book is so relevant. It's so timely. And I thought, I so deeply, profoundly wish that my book were not relevant and timely. I wish people would say to me, your book is so outdated. We don't have to fight for those things anymore. I wish people would say to me, oh, how quaint and archaic your book is. It's so funny how we used to have those fights for, you know, gender rights and reproductive justice and bodily autonomy and freedom from sexual violence. Those were the old days, weren't they? And obviously... Here we are. Here we are. And so that that's a, that's a sad... That's a sad compliment, I guess, to receive. Um, I hope the I hope the less discouraging part is that, you know, I mean, when I imagine Lina Poletti, and this is the the selfish part of my book, I think, is I imagined the Lina Poletti that I wanted, and I want I want there to be a Lina Poletti who is still with us, who, you know, I'm. I'm a great fan of contemporary transfeminist organizations like Ni Una Menos and Las Tesis and No No Di Meno. And I I think about, you know, when we go down into the into the streets, you know, like you say in Italian, scendiamo in piazza, quando scendiamo in piazza, I imagine Lina Poletti as uh, as with us, as alive with us, as her as a, one of her lives is that here she is you know, in her Black Lives Matter t-shirt and and her trans-inclusive rainbow flag chanting with us. And, and I put into my book some of the lines from No No Di Meno chants that are being chanted in the streets right now because, I, I mean, it's very clear. It's not over. These fights are not over. And so I think, I don't know, for me, you know, we need not just allies, but also... also no, no, no. Beacons, I guess. And I think that's what Lina Poletti is to me, a kind of beacon. That's a wonderful way to put it. And and this question perhaps connects to what you were just saying, because we see in this book how gay women's stories particularly are rendered invisible or are dismissed or worse. How do you perceive the landscape for those stories now? Hmm. Well, I mean, hopefully... Hopefully the world of stories is more open to all different kinds of stories across specters of, of gender and sexuality and race and national origin and language and and disability. I, I would like that to continue to happen as quickly as possible. I think, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a piece in which women had the chance to be at the center for a minute. I, you know, I... I took almost all of the men out of the history. That's one of the things that makes it not historical fiction. I just took them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for Oscar Wilde, sort of. And I think I, I thought of it. I thought about Elena Ferrante, who says some things about, you know, just making a space, not not to essentialize the category of women, not to say that somehow this essential category of women is better or any of those things, but just to make a space where people who have historically not had their stories told can can take up the center of the stage for a minute. Can I always think of it as like they can think for themselves, like without all the noise uh, of having to, oh, you know, having to be the wife of somebody, having to be the secretary of somebody, having to have been influenced, of course, by Gabriele D'Annunzio. Na, na, na. Uh, I got, yeah, I've got a real chip on my shoulder, I think, about Gabriele <laughs> D'Annunzio. So I, I took, he was the first one I took out. Um, 
But I think, yeah, I guess I can say in particular about about women and and queer stories. I'm I'm a bi woman. It's it's important to me not that my story be the only story and not that I can tell all of the stories there are to tell, but that that stories that haven't been that haven't been seen even as a worth including, let's say, a hundred years ago in the in the histories in the in the tellings, that those have space to breathe. That's a wonderful note to begin to end on as we draw to our close, because what we do at the end of these conversations is we have a few questions, which we always ask all of our guests. So I'm going to to put those to you now. The first thing is, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? I was so surprised when I got that first note from Ellie from Galley Baker that said, we might want to publish your novel. I just, not only because it had the word novel, but it was just astonishing to me that, you know, I thought my mom would read this manuscript and my little circle, you know, people who already love me. I didn't seem possible to me that people who didn't know me would be interested. And that's still a little astonishing to me. I love that astonishment. We're going to keep with the theme of surprise. What would people be surprised to learn about you? Well, in one of my lives, you know, I used to be a medievalist. And in that time, for a little while, I don't think people would be surprised that I used to be a medievalist. I'm interested in, you know, obscure things. But in that time, for a little while, I lived in Rome and I was going um, every day to the archives in the Vatican Library to work on manuscripts that are held there. And I think what maybe would, would surprise people who haven't been in that, you know, inner library of the Vatican archives is that there's a bar inside. And I have been to that bar and they actually have excellent panini. And I think that might be surprising. That's very good information to have. Aside from the panini in the Vatican, what is your idea of perfect happiness? <laughs> Well, I can't say the Vatican is my idea of perfect happiness. <laughs> I think, I mean, when you first said that, I thought, well, it's that moment when you get into the that first moment when you get into the sea. But actually, I am a little bit, you say in French, frileuse, like I'm a little cold all the time. So it's not the first moment because the first moment I'm really cold. But the second moment when you get into the sea and you can just, you know, you just go underwater in the sea and the whole world sort of goes away while you're underwater. That's, that's, I mean, it makes me very happy. I like that. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity? Oh, well, I, d I don't think anyone needs my permission. Hopefully, everybody doesn't need my permission or anyone else's to express their creativity. But I, I hope that everyone who is drawn to that will, because, you know, the world that we're in needs so much more creativity and making and and putting of beautiful and important things into the world and so much less making of, of hatred and violence. In one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? <laughs> I just made me wonder if there are really are writers who have the gift of summing themselves up in one word. I don't, I don't, I, I, I would need a phrase, but one of the phrases that, um, that I say a lot in my life and is said to me often is the Italian phrase, non si sa mai, which means you, one never knows. It is impossible to know. It's unknowable. And I, I say that a lot. I like that. I think that's very, I might adopt that. It's yours. <laughs> Our final question. 
Your next book, A Life in Chameleons, has just appeared, and it's described as a novella. It won a prize um, as a novella. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what you then hope to do next? Hmm. Well, I yes, again, I didn't know it was going to be a novella, but I, I, what I thought of it was how could I write a life in film strips? That's what I thought it was. So it's the life of Leopoldo Fregoli and some of the people around him told in, in film strips. So it's sort of a history of mm, the, this age of, of performance at the turn of the century, moving into early cinema. And he was a trasformista, quick change artist. So it's full of quick changes. And it looks like it's going to be the life of Leopoldo Fregoli. And actually, it turns out to be the life of the woman who has always been kept in his shadow. I guess I can say that. Very good. Uh, yes. And the next thing, well, I mean, as as I said, I never know what the next thing is going to be. And I've just begun to sort of journey along the very winding path of, of research. So right now I'm reading a lot about um, more things I know nothing about, the microbenthic community and uh, macroalgaes. So those are new. And pig iron. That's another thing I'm just learning about. Um, so I don't know what it's going to become, uh, but it's it's so joyous to be in the process of research. Well, we absolutely look forward to discovering where that leads. Thank you so much, Selby Wynn Schwartz, for joining us on the Rendezvous Literaire podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we have the chance to talk again soon. I can't wait to read what comes next. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon podcast. To discover more about it, you will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt